Hey everyone, it's Justin, the producer from We Eat Art and Mnemonic Recordings. I want to take another chance to thank everyone who's joined our Patreon campaign and has helped keep this podcast going. We just put up a really great episode extra for Patreon members. It's a roundtable discussion about all the different Black Panther comic book series. You know, a lot of people have seen the movie and are talking about it. We happen to have and have access to people who know way more about the history of where a lot of that imagery came from in terms of the artists and writers involved than, you know, the regular run-of-the-mill people. And so we created a whole podcast just specific about that. And it's available exclusively to Patreon members. Also, John, our silkscreen master, is sending out stickers to those fabulous patrons and i love sending mail mail is like the best putting a stamp on an envelope that's like old man mejia's is like saturday night thanks to your donations there's going to be a lot more stuff like this we got all sorts of great things planned and now back to our regularly scheduled interview that image of ian mckay in minor thread the 930 club coming straight at me on top of people in the audience with a microphone stand you know a foot away from my lens about to run into me unless you're a skateboarding photographer you are not getting that shot and unless you had the commitment to the form of photography and the punk rock at the same time, you're not getting that shot. I'm not a fucking voyeur. Fuck that. Those fucking weirdo creeps hanging out on the edges of my scene. Fuck them. I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach in Los Angeles. And this is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... I, I never was interested so much in showing the real thing as much as the idealized image of what I thought they should look like. What they were talking about is what I wanted them to look like. So I'm not into taking off the veneer. The idea is, is that people are singing and speaking upon very serious subjects in their music. And I want that to come across. I want that punch in the face. This episode, we're going to talk to Glenn E. Friedman about what's your occupation. I begrudgingly wrote, you know, artist slash photographer. And that is what I did. And that's how I was making a living and how I was paying the bills. But I just didn't really think that I was that person. I just kept doing it. And I was good at it. And I was better than other people that called themselves that. But I still didn't want to be pigeonholed. I wanted to start out with a, like a real specific question. Because I've heard you talk and I've looked at your stuff. You were saying like the early influences on you were National Geographic and Sports Illustrated. Surfer Magazine, Mad Magazine. Sure. <laughs> as a photographer, you essentially started as a sports photographer. The way that your work always seems different than other you know, music photo people is it's still sports. That sense of catching a very specific moment rather than a, a theater seems to run through everything that you did. There was that early stuff with Thrasher, which was skating, and of course with that, you have to like hit the shutter at exactly the right moment or you lose the trick. And then when you did the hardcore photos, it seemed like you knew how to photograph those people the way nobody else did, which is like you photographed the show like it was a sport. Like there were a bunch of things that would only happen for one moment, and then you would catch those moments. I mean, it's good timing because of the timing from skateboarding and skateboarder magazine is where the first stuff was published. Thrasher was right. five years later. Sorry, yeah. I try not to even refer to it as a sport. It's, it's an athletic activity, but a sport is a little bit too uh, sporty. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's more artistic than sporty, you know, if, if you're really into skateboarding. You know, there's style involved. Yeah, it's, I think it's a timing thing, and it's absolutely correct. My photography of the music scene, I think people talk about that moment because of my growing up in skateboarding, that my moment was maybe a little bit more precise than most other people's. I felt like I wasn't just there capturing. I knew when the moment was, and I helped frame it. It seemed like even as your stuff went on and it got further away from specific performance, 
there is still that sense of this won't happen again. Even in the early rap hip hop covers, even when they were staged, that there was an expression on the person's face that was very specific. I think like a lot of imagery now associated with hip hop is like it's supposed to look eternal or iconic. And your stuff felt more like LL leaning against the school fence and he's standing on yeah. his car. It's like this moment that's very specific in time. It's like we went to this place and shot for this moment and this is about this. And it's not like he's always in your mind leaning against that fence. It's like that happened once. And then the clouds, those are things that will only happen once. They aren't like a platonic idea of a cloud. They're like the way the vapor is moving and it will never be like that again. That's part of the reason I did it. That was an incredible thing, the clouds, because I was making art on the fly, literally, right? I'm in the yeah. plane. I'm looking out the window for like five hours at a time, just staring out the window, waiting for that moment and looking and looking and looking and looking. And then, oh shit, there it is. And I try and snap the shutter and try and capture that moment, right? Precisely the moment where it looks, you know, artistically interesting to me. Were you thinking about somebody else at all? Or are you thinking like no one else has done this, I guess? When with you the clouds or, or? I guess more with the work in general, because it's hard to think of another photographer who had that range that you had. But at the same time, I could easily imagine you thinking like of somebody that I hadn't thought of that you related it to. No, I'm not very well schooled. You could ask me a hundred photographers' names and I could probably recognize a few of them from the history of photography or nowadays. I really don't know anyone's names. There's been things that have inspired me or that I've appreciated in the art, really in art in general, and that helps put me in the direction of my vision. But it was very little of it had to do with individual photographers. And there was pictures, like we said, in National Geographic and in Surfer Magazine and in Sports Illustrated. There were these moments and they made you feel what was going on. And they looked like art. They didn't just look like capture, right? I fucking hate that when people say, oh, great capture, you know. <laughs> it's so digital, first of all. It's not a fucking capture. It's a creation, right? You made the moment. There were many moments happening in front of you in real life, and you framed the moment. You interpreted it your way, and you showed people a way that you wanted them to see it, the way you saw it, the way you thought it was most brilliant, the most inspiring, most exciting, right? In skateboarding, it's when you get that peak moment of action, right? When it's just the extreme edge, the highest air, the hardest grind, the most stylish moment right when you're making a turn, something like that, right? And that was precise. A 500th of a second is what we were working in when I was 13 years old. I had to get that 500th of a second. You're later and you're a sucker. You know, your shot is no good. And particularly hanging out with the people that I was hanging out, there's no reason for them to let me hang out with them unless I was doing something extraordinary. And so I had to prove it. You know, I was a kid from the nice side of town. Most of those guys who were reinventing the sport, making it something new that everyone would grasp onto and be inspired by for, you know, decades to come. They were from the other side of the tracks, you know? So here's this, you know, kid just there starts taking pictures at the schoolyard. It's what was inspiring me. It was what I was seeing going on in front of me. So I felt like this responsibility, I had to frame it in a way to show people what was inspiring me. Had you seen other skate photos at the time or had it mostly just been other kinds of photography? The only other skate photos that I saw that were really impressive to me were Craig Stessick's from the Dogtown articles. And those were in Skateboarder, right? Absolutely. Skateboarder was the first skateboarding magazine. Came out in the 60s for about four issues. Came out as a quarterly. And then it went into hibernation for, I guess, about 10 years. Started back in late 74, early 75. When it was resurrected a few issues in, Craig Stessick was one of the contributors. And his articles were talking about most of the same guys that I was seeing skate every weekend or every day after school. 
the stories that he was telling was taking place in my stomping ground where I was in elementary school and then junior high school. I actually went to school at Kendrick Canyon School. I actually went to Paul Revere Junior High School, which is like probably one of the most photographed places in the 60s where people started riding those banks there in Kenter. And then there was, you know, the Brentwood School and Mar Vista and a couple other schools. But between Paul Revere and Kenter, you know, that's where you saw most of the movies that people had made, where a lot of the groundbreaking stuff was taking place. Later on, it was where people would meet up and then go to places to break the ground, to smash the barriers, to uh, make progress happen within uh, the activity of skateboarding. If he was writing about the same people that you were going to pools and photographing, did you run into him early on when you were uh, shooting, or did it only happen like later when you were kind of established? Well, you know, I'm at the schoolyard taking pictures of the pocket and stomatic is what was going on. And one day on the banks at Kenter, I had some photos with me, and I think by chance I showed them to him amongst the guys who were in the photos with the pocket and stomatic of uh, Shogo and Alva and Paul Constantino, two of the original guys from the Zephyr team. And somehow I think that he saw them and he had maybe ready to make a recommendation that I should send them on down to the magazine. So what I did was I looked in you know the masthead of the magazine. There was this little thing at the front of the magazine that said, we take unsolicited photographs, but we're not necessarily going to return them. And so being the kid that I was, I called up the magazine because I didn't want to send my photographs down there and not get them back. So making a long distance call, which was a little bit bigger deal back then than it was now. I mean, it actually cost you like, you know, 15 cents a minute from LA to San Diego. Yeah. I made the call and I actually got the editor on the phone. I lowered my voice because I was only 14 years old. And I told him I had these photos of Jay Adams that I thought were really great and that I wanted to send them down because I had read that you actually had to send the actual slides down. And imagine, you know, we're talking about film. There's no digital files. There's no files at all. There's either film, they're negative or positives. And you could make prints if you had positives. But he told me to uh, send some photos down. So when I called them, they assured me that they would look after my photographs and they would send them back to me, whether they used them or they didn't. So I sent down probably one sheet of slides and maybe even a proof sheet, maybe not you know, a month or two later. I think I was getting anxious and I got a letter in the mail with a tear sheet and a check from the first time I submitted photos. And again, there wasn't email. There wasn't a lot of communication. It was just like all of a sudden back in the mail, I got a tear sheet and a check. I didn't even get my photos back <laughs> yet, which I was still worried about. But at the same time, I was totally fucking overwhelmed because I got a full page picture in the skateboarder's bible skateboarder magazine and it was a subscription ad and i even had you know a photo credit something i didn't even consider because i was just trying to get the picture in the magazine and it you know must have been 12 point type or something it was all amazing and overwhelming and i just couldn't believe it yeah you were like a kid with a job <laughs> it was on from there you know and not only that i mean it was a picture of jay adams who everyone knew was like one of the most radical guys and here i had the picture of the first person actually ever getting out of a pool you know and pushing the board out over the edge. It's a pretty great moment. It was a very aggressive shot, even though I was really pissed off and disappointed because it was the wrong photo. You know, it was a, clearly a photo to me and to any skater at the time. He's bailing, right? He's just jumping off the board. He's kicking the board out. But it was like many things that Jay Adams did, even though he wasn't making it, you know, it inspired people and it just had that angst and that intensity in it. And it just gave off some energy that stoked the editor. I was fucking bummed. I'm like, why the fuck are they printing a bail shot? But I can't tell you. You know, as a 14 and 15 year old, how many people came up to me? He says, how do you make that? How do you do that? How'd that happen? You know, I'm just like, well, duh, he didn't make it. He's just picking the board out, you know. But then I kind of, you know, got locked into the whole thing and all the admiration of the whole thing. And everyone's so excited about it. I just kind of went along with it. I said, well, you know, 
if you can't tell what he's making or not, I don't know what to tell you. And I, I just wouldn't say anything. And I just let the picture do the talking. There's like some kind of cushion on the left. The board is like wheels up over his feet. He's obviously falling off. Yeah. And then it's a mm-hmm. shallow pool. It's not that shallow. No, it might look at to you, but the guys in the background, it was called a teardrop because it was shaped like a teardrop. It actually had a very tiny shallow end. Imagine a teardrop. And at okay. the end where you step in, and it goes right down into a deep end. Okay. Very much like skate park pools that you would have later in the early years of building pools in a park. There wasn't much of a run. You just had to drop right into the bowl. So it wasn't a shallow pool. It was just as deep as any other bowl. If you look at my book, The Idealist, right. there's a picture of Jay Frontside across from another picture in that book that was also taken from that day. That day I shot one roll of color and one roll of black and white. And actually the best pictures from that day I did print in my book, The Idealist. So people finally got a chance to see them. And they're much more beautiful and much more interesting photographs. I learned very young. Very rarely are the editors going to pick what you want. You know, they always like different stuff. And I would always try and guide them. A lot of your photos is a wide angle. And then you've got the action like right in the middle. Because of the wide angle, you feel like you're surrounded by it. And this one, the lower half of the photo is just the concrete. Yeah. It looks almost like a Harmony Corinne movie or something. It It's much less about the action. It's a scene. For people who weren't there, you're thinking, I missed the moment. You know, or at least this photo doesn't have the moment. But for people who aren't there, it's very atmospheric, much more atmospheric than your other stuff. You see the place and what it was like to be like sitting there much more than the actual trick. Well, I think in a lot of skate photos, it's both. I mean, that's why you use a fisheye lens or a wide-angle lens. You have to understand that, that picture, I was 14 years old when I took it, number one, right? Yeah. Also, I didn't even have my own 35 millimeter at the time. So I borrowed a camera with the widest angle lens that the person who loaned it to me had, which was probably 24 millimeter or a 35 millimeter lens, which is nothing compared to a fisheye, right? So I'm trying to get that peak moment. I'm trying to show the action and compose that image as beautifully as I can. So you see the raft or the blow-up mattress in the corner of the image. You see the stone top. Now, in the version that printed in the magazine, they switch it to black and white, and you see even less detail. You really just see that energy coming off the page. In the foreground, they have text. Yeah. I would imagine that for zines, a lot of the stuff you did had to be in black and white. Well, Skateboarder was a full-color magazine. There were a few other magazines that came up within like 18 months. There was Wild World of Skateboarding and Skateboard World. And everyone who was a skateboarder back then just looked at those and just knew that they were pieces of crap, right? They were just made by big conglomerate corporate publishing houses that saw, oh, well, someone's out there making money on the skateboarder magazine, and now we have to do it. And they're usually people who did like BMX magazines or other sports magazines. But Skateboarder was by far the only one that any real skateboarder took seriously. And we're talking about glossies now. This was a sport that was going by leaps and bounds in 1975 and 76 that could afford a glossy. It was a big deal. You know, it was bi-monthly in the first few issues that I was printed in. By the middle of 1977, it went to a monthly. And for, you know, a good three or four years, it was a monthly magazine. And then things started to go downhill. They had to start losing some of the color pages, going to duotones, more and more black and white, because of course, printing in color was more expensive. Anyways, are we recording yet? I hope so. (laughs) It'd be funny if we weren't. It'd be hilarious. So you're 14 and you're using somebody else's camera, but you still know, like, I want to use the wide angle lens. Did you just pick that up from, like, looking at photos and magazines? No, no, no. I mean, I took photography one, right, at Paul Revere Junior High School, at that same school where a lot of skateboarding history was made. I didn't have a 35 millimeter camera. I had a pocket Instamatic. 
I thought I was much cooler just using a piece of plastic than a big metal hunk of machinery that could break or get stolen or, you know, you just be called a nerd. I learned all the basics of photography. The teacher's in front of the class telling you what all the lenses do, the different shutter speeds do, what the aperture does. Problem is, is that I'm learning on an Instamatic, which you can't focus and you can't adjust the light. It's a step above a pinhole camera, you know, but I'm learning everything. And right away, intrigued because, you know, I see something going on in my world that the rest of the world doesn't really know about. Then all of a sudden, I see something going on in my own world that is getting publicized in printed literature, which is kind of insane. I mean, to think of a kid and their world is being published internationally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a kid with a job. I wouldn't quite call it a job yet, but certainly I was on a mission and I saw something going on and it was exciting the hell out of me. From the beginning, I did want to get in the magazines and I did want to publicize what I was seeing. But even with punk rock and with hip hop, it wasn't just preaching to the converted. I wanted skateboarding to be in Sports Illustrated. You know, I wanted my punk rock photos to be in Rolling Stone. I wanted my hip hop photos to be seen all over the world. I didn't want for that group of people to see it. I wanted more people outside just the core. Now, of course, I would have to please the core group of people, but I always wanted to bring more people in. I wanted to help change things. Was there a point at which the skaters started skating with you in mind? Like they knew that you were there and that they would have a moment of style where they knew, you know, that you were snapping away or are you just always sort of an anonymous presence? No, I mean, guys like Tony and Jay and different people would come and pick me up and we would go skateboarding. Like they had cars. I wasn't even old enough to drive yet. And they knew I was getting good photos and they wanted to be in the magazines too. And they wanted someone to capture what they were doing. I mean, there's a moment in time where like every week is like a month and every month is like a year. I mean, so much is going on. And if you have a magazine that's only bi-monthly or even monthly, it's like by the time something is photographed, developed, printed, sent to a magazine, it's like six months later before people actually see it who aren't there experiencing it. Yeah. So I took my pictures in August or September, October of 76. It came out in the April 77 issue of Skateboarder Magazine, which actually is printed and on the newsstand in January of 77. Yeah, that's forever. But then it stays on the newsstand until April 77. The date that was on the, printed on the magazine is the date they take it off the newsstand, right? Yeah, when you're in school, especially, that's like forever. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that I'm in school while all this is going on. You know? A lot of artists, you know, have this uh, ego that makes us think that our perspective is the correct one, right? Or is it's one that we want to share with other people. I think that I was in a unique position, certainly as a 14-year-old with a camera, hanging out on the schoolyards, breaking into backyards, jumping in the back of a station wagon or of a truck, going to a pool somewhere, or just skating somewhere, or taking the bus or a bicycle to some skate spot that no adult would go to. So you know, again, I'm like kind of privy to these moments and these experiences. Now, when it was Stasek or Warren Bolster or one of the older photographers, it's like, you know, you had to kind of set it up a little bit. They had more of an organized life. Me, I'm just a kid. I'm just happy to be along for the ride. People use the term DIY. You know, that came to prominence more in the punk rock era. But it was really very much the same thing as Ian McKay or Henry or any of those guys will tell me. That's what skateboarding was, right? It was like, it was making something out of nothing on your own. It was just like seeing something and looking at the world in a way that no one else ever had before. You know, you're a skateboarder. You look at those transitions. You look at every piece of concrete, anything that you could ride. It's something for you. 
Yeah, that definitely comes through. I don't know if you're old enough to understand, like you mentioned Thrasher first. You know what I mean? That was yeah. definitely a brain fart on my part because I've heard your interviews okay. where you're like, okay. Thrasher, whatever, but, you know, skateboarder. I mean, when I was young, Thrasher was, like, more obvious magazine. And then you mentioned that fucking, no. that whack filmmaker, too. I mean, oh, no. let's try and keep the garbage <laughs> out of the frame, you know? Oh, wow. Obviously, some people are inspired by skateboarding, though, and that that's reasonable. And, no, well, and then there's something about that person that reminded me of other people of that era yeah. but yeah my comparison of my shit to that is just insulting so that's no, good I, to not, know that I understand that you don't understand things but this is important you, you don't have an understanding you're not you're not that old you don't you don't know i'm a child where everything comes from how old are you guys i'm like a million I'm 45 well, that's still a child you know that's a generation but that's not a child how old are you zach 12 i'm 35 but you can't be influential okay. without influencing people who don't understand what you're doing in the way that you did and the fact that the first photo that you put was not the one that you meant to, and yet someone else is absolutely. finding it inspiring is interesting. Yes, absolutely. No, and then later on it inspired me, and I got to understand it. I learned from that experience. The thing is, like, you were there first in a lot of places, and then people came after, and they did a lot of moves that you did, but they understood them in different ways. And you could be like, okay, well, they don't get it. That's true, but if they did get it, they might just be another one of you, you know, like you'd be a, a clone. Obviously, you, the garbage filmmaker, he was clearly inspired by you, like so obviously. On the other hand, you're like, oh, I wouldn't go near that shit. That's interesting because two generations down, that's what they're seeing. They're seeing a copy of someone trying to copy you. There's probably some photographer from 1945 who thinks that everybody in Sports Illustrated and in National Geographic that you liked was the garbage copy of them. And it's like everybody is scraping their own idea of the way things were together from a bunch of sources that feel like they come from the same place. I wanted to know if you ever took any more photography classes or if just the junior high was the only one. I took a photography class in junior college in order to raise my GPA just so I could transfer to a better state school in California. And in fact, a couple of kids in the class recognized because I had already been publishing skateboarder for a while, but we kind of kept that quiet and I got an A in the class and people would come up to me in the class and ask questions afterwards. Even though I'm not very schooled in photography, I've never been about the equipment. I mean, I know the real basics. Unless you want to be a commercial artist, I, I don't understand why anyone would go to art school or photography school or anything like that. I mean, I guess you could learn certain techniques. But I think if the art is in you and the creativity is in you, you will find a way to get it out of you. All I suggest to people is read the manual that comes with your equipment. And if you could figure that shit out to help you create and show the compositions that you want to, that's all you need to do. My favorite camera to this day is still my Pentax K1000. I used to MX more often than not back in the day because it was smaller and I was able to put a motor drive on it. But it was also because it was smaller. I mean, it was so fucking attached having small shit because I was a skateboarder and I didn't want bulky things, right? And I wanted something that was fast and light that I can carry. From the pocket and thematic, I went to a KM, I think was the first one, which turned into a K1000, right? That was just a little later model. It was the first thing after Spotmatic. And again, I'm not nerding out on it. This is all the photography I know. I've never owned a Nikon. I've never owned a Canon. I've held them and I found them horribly bulky and overrated and over. Priced. I used a Pentex K1000, the most popular SLR 35 millimeter camera, I think, in the history of the world, you know, at least until digital photography came along, because it was inexpensive and it was a fucking workhorse, right? So it came with a 50 millimeter lens, like most cameras did, and was very manual. 
had a light meter built into it, and all you had to do was fucking line that needle up in the center and focus that thing, and, and the sky is the limit. Do all that other shit that they teach you in art school, or from what I could gather, that's for people who don't have it in them. I fucking yeah. had a mission, man. I was born with it, it's fucking, and, and so have other people. You've got shit in you, you got to get it out of you. Often not, I find that school helps people commercialize their shit. You know, that was never a goal for me. I mean, I figured it out over the years. I've had great pains, you know, had to deal with my photography being abused and used, but also having stuff that was unique. So living in a capitalist society, figuring out a way to make a living from it, starting working for a magazine at 14 years old, I learned the hard way, man. And I still learn every day. I mean, people still try stealing from me to this day. It's unbelievable. Well, where else are we going to find a picture of minor threat? There's nowhere else to get one. Yeah, no, no, no. Just as long as you use it respectfully. I don't mind when kids make T-shirts. I don't mind when, when people put them on their websites. As long as they're not commercially being abused, it's all good. It's there for people to share and inspire people. There's nothing better than that, except for when people put it on a fucking pair of socks or underwear or a shirt or a watch. You know, that's bullshit. You made your own shirt. I'm flattered, and that's really cool. I'd like to maybe even get a copy of it, you know. Commercial entities take your stuff or they want to do it to sell another product or sell their product, you know, borrow your credibility that you've created over all these years with your own work. That's fucking foul. And that's where I'm going to find a good lawyer and make you pay for that shit. You got to pay a fine, motherfucker. You cannot take my copywritten <laughs> shit and exploit it for your fucking business. Fuck no. You're going down as far as I'm concerned. I've been doing this way too long. You're not exploiting my shit in a way that I don't want it to be so I apologize. I go off on way too many tangents. There's no artist listening who won't agree with everything you just said. So that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain point at which you took your last skate photograph. Even today, probably like you photograph people, they're skating maybe or see somebody. But at a certain point, you were like, that body of work is not where I'm at and I'm moving on. Obviously, there are lots of reasons to start photographing a new thing. But I'm interested in the moment where you stop photographing the old thing. Well, I never stopped photographing any of the old things. I took photographs of Tony Alva last year when I bought a lens off of eBay. And I said, hey, Tony, Tony was in town. I said, can we go to take pictures? I just want to try out this lens. And I got a fucking great picture of him. We had the best time. We went out at fucking 10 o'clock in the morning out to the skate park at Pier 62 here in New York City. And I got a picture of Tony Alva that rivals any picture that I took 40 years ago. The lighting was nice. And it was on fucking film. It was composed beautifully. Tony was fucking 59. Wow. When we made those photos, we took the bus back across town. It was like we were kids, man. You can't lose that innocence. Once it gets too routine, I think people see it in the art. But there was a point by the early 80s, it wasn't as exciting to me. And then all of a sudden, I was going to punk rock shows, right? Shows were a new thing. I was, you know, 17, 18. All of a sudden, we're not fucking at the Coliseum. Or, you know, at the forum or, you know, not seeing, you know, big, huge shows. We're like seeing shows at a nightclub. And a nightclub for kids is new, right? Kids were never allowed in nightclubs because usually drinking is going on. But then all of a sudden they were letting kids in for punk rock shows and, you know, putting X's on their hands and doing whatever it was. And they were able to come in and see the shows. And like this music was happening in front of my fucking own eyes that I could reach out to. It wasn't on a fucking stage, right? And all of a sudden that fucking music that, some of my friends are creating or the people who skateboard are creating, it's within arm's reach. So I'm getting my ass kicked every night by going to shows. Like, this is the new shit. This is what's killing me. And these people are talking about politics. They're not just doing revolutionary acts by being in backyards and and progressing with an athleticism that's never been seen by the world before. 
these guys are talking politics. And I've been political as long as I could remember. And when people started talking about it in the music and with an anger and an angst like I had in my own life about what was going on in the world, I was all about that shit. I had to show people why. But as I'm less inspired, I don't shoot as often. My best work always comes from when I'm inspired. Now, I'm at the point where I could shoot a great photograph any day of almost anything if I want to. I have an eye. I've got a way of looking at things. I think I can make things look beautiful or have a perspective that I can appreciate when I look back at the film later. But there are those moments in time where it's like, okay, I've been shooting skateboarding for this many years, and there was a progression, and there was shit going on, like I told you, where it was growing in leaps and bounds every week, and there was something new you were shooting almost all the time. Now, that's not to say that a frontside grind doesn't look beautiful in 1976 and in 2017. It still does, because it shows style, it shows intensity, it shows character, and I compose it in a way that brings it all together and still excites me. I can still do that. But after you've done it a certain amount of times, it's not as exciting. It's not as as fun. You're not showing people something new that they haven't already seen in a way that's going to kick their ass, right? I want the photos to really just fucking like a punch to your fucking face. That's what it was like. I wanted everything to have the most intensity possible. Every fucking picture had to be a goddamn knockout. And if it wasn't, there was no fucking reason to use it. They weren't just using it because I was there, okay? Because there were plenty of fucking photographers around the edge of the pools, not at all the sessions I went to, but other times people were doing it. There are plenty of people on the sides of the stage or rarely in the front of the stage like I was very often or had the opportunity to shoot some of these hip-hop artists. There were people there. The same way it was kicking my ass, I needed it to kick everyone else's ass that I knew would be the audience for my work. Usually I was keeping in mind not only the hardcore aficionados of each one of those things, but also a wider audience. You pay attention to character in your photography. That's something that anyone can relate to. When you say pay attention to character, that's an important key in to what you look for. When I see a picture of yours, there's like one thing, like a punch in the center. I hope there's many. Well, there's one thing to start with. You know, you like, oh, that's a person doing this. And then after a second, you notice in the background, there's all these other things which tell you about where it is and what's going on. But I'm interested in the idea of how do you photograph character? Like, what does that mean to you? Character is facial expressions. It's seeing someone's eyes and seeing what they're thinking and showing their style. You know, skateboarding is an amazing place to start as a photographer for anyone. It's because skateboarding works with architecture and humans and timing. But the thing that lacks so greatly in today's skateboarding photography is that closeness. And that character, I don't see it as much as I used to, you know, because it's all based on tricks. and People are far away, usually with telephoto lenses. And then when they are using a wide angle lens, it's like they don't even really take the time to learn what it's really about and why you're actually using it. You know, it's almost like, oh, well, this is what we're supposed to use. You know, I'm happy that a lot of people don't use it now because for some of those tricks, certainly a longer lens is a better thing to use. Reason to use the wide angle, the fisheye lens, is because you want to be as close to the intense action as possible. Literally close. I would be focused on three feet, and that would be the distance between the person's face and my lens. But the great thing about having the fisheye is that by focusing even at three feet or four feet, I can also see the entire environment of what we're riding in or where we're at. Yeah. Did anybody ever skate into you? Did people crash into me while I was taking photos? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, sure, of course, all the time. So you weren't afraid about messing up your lens or anything? Or you were, but you just live with it? I was definitely afraid of it sometimes, but you just got to get the shot. If you go way back when I was 14 and 15, those guys would fucking fly the boards at me on purpose just to fucking toughen me up, you know, because I came from the nice side of town. And I, I I took fucking boards in the shins plenty of times, not until four years later when I was already kind of known entity in the whole skate world. Once by accident, someone did hit my lens, but it took a long time before my lens actually got hit. That was a pretty memorable experience. <laughs> the lens didn't break. It got bent back. And because, again, that happened because I'm with a fisheye and I like to get as close to the moment as possible. I look through the lens. You know, the thing that people started doing by 1977, 78, a lot of these fucking kooks were just holding the camera down by the coping and just snapping the picture without even looking through the lens, you know. And I fucking hated that because I was a skater. I put myself right in harm's way all the time. The only time I didn't look through the lens was if I was at a contest and I couldn't put my camera and my face in harm's way necessarily and maybe fuck up the moment. You know, like someone's actually in a contest competing. If you're at a baseball game and you get on a pitcher's mound, you can't do that during the game. So that's the only time I might hold the fisheye by the pool and not actually, you know, be looking through. I'm real at this. I'm not a fucking pretender. I'm there, man. I'm a fucking skater. It sounds like you're almost trying to make the activity of making your work on the same level of intensity as the the thing that you're photographing. They're doing something demanding and you are at the moment trying to make what you're doing in the most demanding way. I mean, that's what you have to do. It was my obligation to do so. I was there in those moments. I got myself in those places. It wasn't fucking luck. It was my responsibility to do so. Because if I didn't do so when I was that kid, I get my ass kicked. I wouldn't be invited to come again. That's the truth back in the beginning. The best school is literally if you do bad work, you don't get to come back. Absolutely. I have a question in general for any time you did an event. Were you one of those people who shot lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of rolls of film? Or did you wait and shoot very few and try to get exactly the right second? Film is a great resource. I shoot very little film to this day. Some people need to do that over and over and over again. And I think that those people have much more luck involved than I do because you're shooting everything all the time. Even when I was a contributor and on the masthead at Skateboarder Magazine at 15 years old, we didn't have that kind of money to waste on shooting film like that. When I was at a pool, I was waiting for the right moment, getting in the correct position, and I might not get a photo for the first half hour of the session. Sometimes I would take you know five or six photos in one run, but it had to look right it had to be correct to my eye before I photographed it. And sure, there were plenty of shitty photos, I mean, over the years. But with me, there were a lot fewer because I shot a lot less. I have one roll of film where I've got a skater in Australia. I've got an exhibition of mine at the ICA in London. And the Beastie Boys cover for Intergalactic all on one roll of film. Nice. Was it at least the 36? always the 36 you only shot 20 if that's all they had and you know there were always these rumors around as a kid that national geographic had fucking they had like 76 frames or 84 frames they like had double the film in a roll so they wouldn't have to like it was a special film just made for them so they wouldn't have to switch it out as often because they're shooting wildlife and stuff like that i always that was just a dream for me to be able to do that but then there were people like desic who actually rolled his own film I wasn't that up on the technology. I was never a gearhead. It's definitely annoying to work with me being in front of my lens as a subject because I'm always waiting for the moment before I snap the shutter. I don't just snap 100 things and hope to get one good one. And that works for some people, and that's good for them. I think it's corny. I think it's a waste of resources. It's just not the way that I work. The later days when it's not just action in a skate situation or at a live show 
when we're actually composing pictures of, you know, portraits of people, you know, the people who sit in front of my lens or stand in front of my lens, we could have a really good time, but they got to respect what I'm doing because I respect what they're doing. That's why we move forward and we create art together. And it does take a long fucking time. It might not look post, but we take our time doing this. When it was came time to do album covers, right? Like all of a sudden by the mid eighties, that's what I'm doing mostly is album covers, right? And I'm shooting portraits of people and people knew what I was doing. They would come to me because I had a reputation and because they would see we had a different look than what most other people had. We don't usually find locations ahead of time. We're on a mission together. We walk around, we see things, we stop, we look through the lens, doesn't look right, we keep moving, or this looks great, we're getting it now. You know, It's a very arduous process, and I like the subject to be a part of it as much as I am. Sometimes I have the artist their patients might be wearing thin, you know, like, okay, Glenn, we're walking around for a half hour in the Lower East Side or up in Harlem or, or down in Skid Row in LA or something like that. And like, and we haven't taken a picture yet. What the fuck? You know? And I'm like, I got a good spot. We're here now. Look, this is what we've been waiting for. This is it. We got it. Come here, come look in the lens. I'll be you. You be me. And they're like, oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have said anything. Okay. Let's do this. You know? And that's how it works, man. It's fun to see how the artist's perspective is on it. And people like Ice-T and Chuck D, who I talked with recently, you know, from my last book, and the people I've, you know, I talked to over the years, it's fun to hear them talk about the old days when we did our sessions and how they still stand out to them like nothing they've ever done before. And that makes me proud and happy that they remember it and that it was good. And it also taught them about photography. I mean, look what the Beastie Boys did with the first sessions they had with me. You know, that shit stuck with them forever. Yeah. When they did their stuff for the... uh Paul's boutique album cover. I was so fucking pissed. I was like, these little fucking brats, how come they're fucking using the shit that I showed them? They're using the wide angle lens yeah. and all that stuff, you know, the fisheye. I was like, what the fuck, man? That's disrespectful. What are they doing? But then I saw in the reflection in Mike B's glasses, they fucking just had the camera up on a tripod and they did it themselves. I was like, okay, that's cool. I showed them the way they took it and they took it to where they want to do it so they can be in control. And that was cool, you know, and I inspired them to do that. And they did their own photography. You know, Rick Rubin once told me, he said, the thing about my pictures was that I made such an ugly thing look so beautiful. And I couldn't get a better compliment in my life because that's exactly what I was trying to do. By photographing a peak moment, you always tell the person like what, what they're looking at. You're like, it's this. But it also separated my shit from other people's, Zach. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That image of Ian Mackay in Minor Threat at the 930 Club coming straight at me on top of people in the audience with a microphone stand, you know, a foot away from my lens, about to run into me. Unless you're a skateboarding photographer, you are not getting that shot. And unless you had the commitment to the form of photography and the punk rock at the same time, you're not getting that shot. I'm not a fucking voyeur. Fuck that. Fucking weirdo creeps hanging out on the edges of my scene. Fuck them. <laughs> If you're shooting very few pictures on a roll of film and you're shooting the portraits for hip-hop covers, I can see that changing the way the subject reacts to you a lot. Because when I shoot somebody, because I'm a painter, I'm just shooting them to get something I can paint from. And I'm just like, just do what you would normally do. I'm going to take pictures, ignore me. But when you are being photographed and the person hasn't hit the shutter button yet, you think you're doing it wrong and you keep doing new things. And I can see if you were with a subject, not shooting, just sitting there with the camera like, that's not the picture yet. And just, they notice you're not hitting the button. 
probably pushes them a lot further. They have to be more creative because they realize that just standing there won't make you press the button. And they're not getting out of the photo session until they make you press the button. I don't put that much pressure on them until the last moment, to be honest. I'm looking through the lens and I'm composing everything around them. Then I concentrate on their face and their mannerism, position of their hands, their body, their fingers, their legs, their hair, their clothing. There's some of my trade that I know that I use with people and I show them, make a fist, not a limp wrist, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and you could see it in that person's photographs the rest of their life, you know, because they're conscious of it and they know how it looks in the end photograph, you know, and that's cool. I want everyone to take good photographs, by the way. I don't want to be the only one doing it. The problem is, is that very often I am because I care so much. And so I'm so devoted to the subject and the subject matter. Most of the album covers I did, the artist demanded me. Very rarely did a record company hire me. The artists want me to do it because quite honestly, all the record companies usually didn't like working with me. I told people what had to be done. There were no art directors ever involved in my photo sessions. Yeah, I do it. I bring it to them. They use it later. I've worked with a couple of great art directors over the year who worked really well with type, worked with me on compositions. Then there's your wannabe art directors who you know, get credit for doing things that they never even do. You know, they're toys, we used to call them in the graffiti days. Very often, artists had their own ideas, and we work together. I show them my vision of it, and we make it all happen at the same time. Some artists don't know what the fuck they want. And then I listen to the music, and, and being a fan of theirs usually, I'm not just a hired fucking gun from the record label, I'm into what they fucking do. Nowadays, being more visual is a big part of the whole thing. Most of my album covers are done before the time of video, even. What you saw of the artist was on their album cover and the live show. And goodness knows, unless you run DMC in hip hop, there were not very many good live shows. It was very rare. There were no live instruments back then. There was just a DJ and people would just walk back and forth on the stage. Was that why you didn't photograph hip hop shows the way you photograph punk rock shows? Because the the shows weren't as visual? Absolutely. They were mostly boring MCs just walking back and forth on stage. You clearly, you liked the artists you were photographing, but were you like, I like you, but watching you uh, do a show isn't that fun, so I'm just going to take you out in a car. Yeah, it just wasn't that dynamic. I mean, it's it's a man and a mic, you know? And usually a microphone has to be in someone's face while they're rapping. It's not right against their mouth, you know? And now all of a sudden the hand is blocking the face. I'm losing the character. That's not conducive to great pictures. But the other thing is, is that hip-hop very often in the early days was being photographed in the studios because a lot of photographers didn't want to go to the hood. There weren't that many photographers in the neighborhoods where hip-hop was going on. In fact, there were usually none. And then the record company would hire someone and they wouldn't want to go to that neighborhood. I would take people in there and make photos with them in their own neighborhoods. The great thing about that is that you, you ask people, so where are you most comfortable? Well, let's go to your house. You know, LL Cool J, we met his grandma's house. We shot pictures in his bedroom, in his basement, for the back cover of the bad album cover. We drove around his neighborhood. By the end of the day, as a, this nice session we were having all day, we ended up at his high school. And I was like, okay, let's stop. It's like fucking, you know, nine, ten o'clock at night. We've been up since early in the morning. And I'm like, oh, this place, this is great. This is like beautiful architecture. Let's just do this. And I just had this idea. I said, like, I know this is a brand new car and stuff, but what do you think about standing on top of the car? Like right by the fence here. And we only took a couple of photos because it was late at night. And like, and I was using a six by seven camera, which I almost never used, but I was, it was new then. And I was trying to step up my game a little bit because hip hop was getting big. How old was LL in those pictures? 
I think the first time I shot pictures of him, he was certainly a teenager. Might have been 16. Oh, wow. Yeah, he looks so young. The first time I took pictures of him was 84, 85. And he just happened to be in the Rush office. And he had only had his first single to come out. And the second single was about to come out. And I was still living in California. They flew me out to shoot Run DMC for their tour book. But he happened to be by the office that day. And we just walked out to Madison Square Park and took pictures around 23rd Street and in the subway and stuff like that. And I wasn't living in New York yet. So all those things were like seething character. You know, and just the surrounding was so vital to me. You know, the subway trains and the, and the old park bench and stuff like that. I think I only made one roll of film of him. Every frame is great in one way or another. I mean, we used one photo over the last 30 years. There's only one shot I really published off of that role because it was where he looked kind of tough. And that was the whole thing. You wanted him to look tough. But he really wasn't that tough yet. He was a pretty soft kid still. But the tough shot is a shot that we exposed and we wanted people to see. 25, 30 years later, you look at the pictures, the innocence in the other photos, and it's just like, oh my goodness, these are really the great photos of the role. Back then, they wouldn't have been because he would have looked soft and young. But now you look back <laughs> and there's a romanticism to him. Was that your first time in New York? No, 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 it wasn't at all. I mean, I lived in northern New Jersey and I'd been in New York my whole life. Okay. My parents divorced and I moved out to the West Coast and then I was back here for every school vacation though. I was a bi-coastal kid, as they say. And then in 11th and 12th grade, I came back to the East Coast to finish high school. My mom couldn't deal with me and my brother and so she shipped us back to my dad. And that's when I started going to shows and stuff, and, you know, going to Mug Club and CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. For people who don't get the general timeline, like I'm just gonna lay that out here. Like, so you were shooting skaters, then eventually you started shooting hardcore punk, and then you started shooting hip hop. And by that point, you became like a well-known photographer and you were in demand to shoot. Your access to shooting skaters was you went to that same school. When you started shooting punk shows, what was your first in with them? Was it just like you're here and had a camera and you were doing good photos and you showed them and they were like, yeah, you can photograph us? Do you remember the first moment you went from being a person who went to a show to a person who was in and was allowed to sort of photograph people in different ways? First punk photos I took, I think were in 79, was a band called The Stimulators. I just photographed them because I just brought my camera and took pictures. There was 10 people at the show. Harley Flanagan was the drummer. He was like 12 years old or 11 years old. It wasn't the Ramones, it wasn't Talking Heads, it wasn't the Dead Boys, it wasn't the Clash or the Sex Pistols. I was photographing the next generation, the younger kids. Now, I shot the Buzzcocks and the Police, you know, other bands that were on a bigger stage, you know, where like a thousand people were playing, but it was the bands that my friends were playing in, or, or when I was in L.A., the Weirdos would be playing, or X would be playing. Did you know, like, the Stimulators or the Weirdos no, I didn't or X? Know them, okay. but then I was at a Black Flag show, and they knew me because of my skateboarding photography. A year after that, at a Bad Brain show, I meet Ian McKay and Alec McKay and Rollins, and they're like, oh, it's Glennie Friedman from Skateboarder Magazine. What the fuck? They were psyched. They already knew my work. For me to be photographing them in SSD Control and the Big Boys, any of those bands that were like the biggest bands in their parts of the country, they all read Skateboarder. Working for Skateboarder Magazine in the 70s, I can go anywhere in the world, and I was a teenager in Europe or, you know, that I might happen to travel. Virtually any skateboarder in the world at the time knew who I was. It was the Bible. It was the one thing that everyone all around the world read who was into that scene. And a lot of those same kids learned about punk rock and certain bands from Skateboarder Magazine and from yeah. Action Now Magazine, which Skateboarder developed into. That story you tell oh. about LL where the photo you took ended up being the tough one, and then these other photos, they're more interesting now in retrospect. Were there other artists mm -hmm. that you were shooting where you had a similar effect, where what we know from your photo is different than 
what you experienced at the time or, or, or than another photo you took? Well, you know, I think with the skateboarding pictures, only the most radical pictures, the most intense ones, the best of the best could be published. So if the guy was doing an aerial and it wasn't like, you know, the highest at that time, it wouldn't have gotten published. But if you go back and look at the photos, there's pictures of some guys at the dog bowl. They're not even grinding. You know, they're not doing anything spectacular, but it's a beautiful picture at the dog bowl. Historic now, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then the other thing is, it also explains to you the politics of the era. Neither myself or Craig Stefik ever got a cover shot of Skateboarder Magazine. That's insane. Yeah, if you look back at the work, we clearly had the greatest photographs yeah. of all the photographers there. There was a lot of politics involved. And you look at like my Dogtown book or any of my books where a majority of the photos were never even published. You could say like, why the fuck wasn't this ever published? Well, one of the reasons was is I was 14, 15, 16, 17 when I was working for Skateboarder. And there were other guys in their 20s and 30s who had families to feed. I learned very early on to... It was very competitive, which I don't like. I don't like art as competition ever. I can't stand award shows and all that shit. And it's, it's capitalism getting in the way. I idealized people in my photographs. Plenty of people were not that cool who I made look very cool in front of the lens. And that was my objective. I would hear their music. I would see what they were doing. This is how I envisioned them. And then they would get in front of my lens and I would see they were just a total fucking nerd, just like I was maybe, or even worse. Did you ever have the urge in the other direction? You're like, this is real, this is true. Or you're just like, no, I want to make them look like the music made me feel. I, I never was interested so much in showing the real thing as much as the idealized image of what I thought they should look like. What they were talking about is what I wanted them to look like. Now, I'm not into taking off the veneer. The idea is, is that people are singing and speaking upon very serious subjects in their music. And I want that to come across. I want that punch in the face. Now, I know that sometimes it's inspiring to see people as real people. That isn't what I did. It might look like that way to you, but that's not what I did. Like, it was so extremely posed that it looked unposed. So many of your photos, they show that idealization, but at the same time, they have so many more little details and like real things in them than other people. Yeah who they go about idealization by simplifying the situation. Whereas you tried to create a situation that seemed as complicated as real life, but still heroic. It was convincing. My stuff is pretty blatant, but I go for exaggeration. Take, for example, first Ice-T album cover. Yeah, that is L.A. He shot in front of palm trees in a car with his girlfriend. I just went all the way there. Now, once someone becomes more well-known and people know their character, I could shoot a picture of the Beastie Boys walking on Mulholland Drive down a long and windy road through this adventure we call life. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's corny, but it's true, and it's what they were doing, right? But you already know them. They kind of took your style and definitely used it for their own imagery, but you can also see they tried in every image of themselves. They would build up an image in one thing, and then in the next one, they would try to tease it out more so that you thought they were even more like that because they're like that at home when they're dressed up like old men. And then they, they're like that wearing like radiation suit. Like the idea of like extending the myth into like all these different areas. You know, that's one of the things that that whole Spike Jones and Beastie Boys thing that really turned me off with the sabotage type things. That era, there's a lot of pranksterism going on. People were just like goofing on shit. And I took shit very seriously. And again, I don't think the VC boys were necessarily copying what I showed them, but they were inspired by it. I mean, Yauk 
doing all those videos on his own and him composing a lot of that stuff. You look at the Shaker Rump video. I mean, they just have three cameras on tripods. They know what they wanted to do. Why do I want to go shoot skateboarders or punk bands now unless they're my age? I don't want to be that weirdo fucking old man at the show or at the skate park. It's gross. You know, unless there's no one else who could do it, I would much rather inspire some peer of the people who are doing the activity to be shooting the activity. That's what needs to happen. What was the last time you were interested in shooting people? The last time I shot a picture that I really enjoyed shooting actually was uh, Nadia from Pussy Riot. I shot a great portrait of her last year when I was filming her for a project that I was working on. And she's inspiring to me. And that's why I shot a great portrait of her. And I can make great pictures of people when I'm not inspired, if they've inspired me in the past or there's something else going on. I mean, I went to Dome Chomsky's office. The guy didn't seem like he was going to be living that much longer. And I think it's been five years since I made photographs at his office. But I did the best that I could because he has meant so much to me. I only had two minutes and low light. and I was just using film. And it's like, it wasn't easy, man. It wasn't easy. But I got one photo that I'm really proud of and that looks really fucking cool and it speaks to me. There's people out there that I would still like to photograph, but let someone else do it, man. Someone else who's closer to the, it's more of a peer of the person. But if I haven't seen the photograph I want created, then I'll have to create it myself if I get the opportunity to. But I don't shoot as much as I used to in any of the fields that I've been known for. I still love shooting landscapes and people. These days, I like telling other people how to do it too. Now everyone has a camera in their pocket all the time. And quite frankly, those Instamatics that they're using are infinitely better than any Instamatics we ever have, but it's much the same way. You just look through and you snap it. You don't have to focus or nothing. I mean, the quality is, it really is miraculous what people can get. So I try and give people just the basics, what composition is, <laughs> what character is. Look at other pictures that you admire, whether they're of mine or anyone else's, and try and match that while you're taking pictures, you know, of moments that you see in your life. And and think of the lines and how it lines up evenly. And then the young people are using fish eyes and wide angle lenses. Just do me a favor. Pay attention to the horizon. Fish eye is not made for people to look like clowns. That's not what it's for. You know, I mean, you could use it for that, but then you're just a clown. It's there for a reason. To get close to the subject and at the same time show a lot of the environment around the subject. And otherwise, don't use it. It's just not a, it's not a toy to me. The lenses are your brushes, right? And I take this shit seriously as fuck. And you don't have to do that. But don't call yourself an artist if you're not a craftsman, too. To me, you're not an artist just because you're fucking putting down a doodle and you make a little saying that's black. There's plenty of modern art and postmodern art and whatever the fuck you want to call it. And I go over to Chelsea and walk into uh, galleries there. I mean, it makes me very uncomfortable. I feel sick sometimes, like heaving. Really? This gets in a fucking gallery? This is meant to be looked at by anyone other than the person who created it and maybe their friends? I think it's valid that people draw and feel good about it and they're expressing themselves and that's nice and put it up in your own house don't fucking make me go into a gallery to see this bullshit goodness knows i haven't had a show in new york city in 25 years really why is that because i don't play the fucking gallery game you know i'm not fucking out there drinking with people afterwards i'm not hobnobbing and i don't want to give a gallery 50 percent of what my work sells for in fact I don't even need you to sell my work. Why don't you just have an exhibition and show my work? Let's not sell it. That's how I like to present it. People could buy my prints, but that's not what I promote. I like museums much better. But the, even then, they're sponsored usually by alcohol beverage companies, tobacco companies, people that are trying to sell products. Mm. And I ain't trying to sell your fucking product. I'm not trying to loan my credibility to you. If my stuff is in a gallery and they want to do a show with me and they understand what I'm doing and they appreciate what I'm doing, then fuck yeah, let's do it. I'll give you 20%. How's that? Because you're not fucking telling people who I am. If I'm a new artist, you could take 
I get it. You have to run a business. I've been doing this shit before you were fucking, you know, had a gallery. And if you had a gallery in the 70s, then that's fine. I've made my own name. You made your own name. You take 20%. That's all you're getting. Can you talk about your collaboration with Shepard Ferry a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know, I respect Shepard. People want to talk down to him and all that. He's a craftsman and he's got something to say. He's not a radical. He's a good, solid liberal. And we need more fucking liberal people, you know? Shepard Ferry is definitely not a Nazi. That's a big <laughs> improvement over what we got these days. <laughs> and he's not right wing either. And he's not centrist either. Not everyone has to be radical all the time. But what is good is that he cares and he tries. And everyone does it in their own way. And if everyone cared as much as he did and worked as hard as he did, this would be a much better world. And there'd be much better art being created. His craft might look simple to some. I know he takes it very seriously. What's funny to me is that like he discovered, you know, the circle jerks and public enemy like at the same time, which to me is like a generation apart, right? <laughs> yeah. Decades apart in my mind on that same scale of what I was telling you before when things were moving so fast in that era when they were being born, right? Or being reborn or, or emerging through that first incubation stage. You know, people give me credit for being the first to be there and that. No, I wasn't. I was never the first. and I was never the only one, actually. Skateboarding was there in the 60s. I didn't shoot it till the 70s. You know, punk rock, there was that older generation. I didn't shoot the Ramones till 1981. I thought that was a real chump move on my behalf. I was like, I'm shooting the Ramones in 1981. I'm a loser. I'm a chump. If I don't have a picture of the Ramones at CBGB's, it's really worthless. But just because I love them so much and they inspired me so much, I couldn't not make a picture of the Ramones when I saw them play. Have you ever found a connection to an artist or creator, but you couldn't find a way to photograph them? Or you tried and, and nothing came out that you felt was among your best work? Because, and I ask this for the specific reason, you have a very strong idea of what art should be about, and yet you've managed to photograph people who have their own style, and you photograph them in a way where you have sympathy for their style, even when they're miles apart. And I'm interested if that ever just didn't work. Like you were inspired by someone, you love their work, and you try to photograph them, or you didn't because your aesthetics were too far apart. If I love their work, I was able to figure it out and move away from my own aesthetic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there are bands that I've made photographs of for friends. Like Rick Rubin would ask me to shoot this band or that band, like someone I just couldn't take seriously or someone that I didn't even like. But because of his excitement, I was able to shoot them. Some of my best friends, I don't get along with in some ways, but I get along with other ways. Someone like Rick, we just love music. And sometimes he can get me to see a side of a band that I liked. And I was able to see something that I could photograph because he wanted me to make pictures with them so badly. And he thought I would be a perfect fit. And, and, and I was able to do stuff with you know, Slayer and System of a Down, bands that I don't particularly care for, right? John, what was your question that you asked, I don't think I was finished with that, and I apologize. What was it? Oh, I was asking about your connection with uh, Shepard Ferry. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. If we can get back to that. Sure. Shepard had used some of my work in his earlier work without speaking to me, in fact, and he's selling it on T-shirts and stuff, and I was a little bit concerned that it wasn't being exploited, but... Then I spoke to him and I saw where he was coming from and what his ideals were. And he seemed like a decent guy and I liked him. And when I first met him face to face, it was when I came out to Los Angeles for, I think it was my Fuck You All show at Six Space. And I got off the plane and I went right to the gallery to see what it was like because it was opening the next night. And when I got off the plane, I also had news that Jam Master J had just been killed. So I saw Shepard there. He was there at the gallery and these guys broke the news to me. And I was very upset. 
while we were at the gallery, you know, me and Shepard were talking. I think we had actually worked together, he reminded me, on another project. We had never met each other. So this was the first time we were meeting face-to-face. And I knew he was a skater and he admired my stuff. And so I asked him at that moment, I said, hey, man, I'm really upset right now. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I want you to take this shot right here of Jam Master J. And could you just do something to make a graphic for the show? Because I want to put up a sign at the show and dedicate the show to him. Because I can't be here and not think of him. And I, I said, just do your thing, man. And within 24 hours, we had something up on the wall for the show. Maybe I was there two days before the show started. And he came to meet me and came to see the show before it opened because he had to leave town. That's how busy he was, but he still found the time to do that on the spur of the moment. And he did his thing, you know, to my image. I really appreciated it. And it was really cool. Over the years, he would come to me. He would want to use my images for something. I knew that he was personally inspired by the work. He wasn't just exploiting it in a bad way. He felt it. And it moved him and it inspired his life. When he became successful, you know, he hit me up and said, let's do something. He said, it's collaborative. You could make some money doing this. And I want you to like it. I don't know if the public enemy one was the first one we did. And I really liked the way it came out. The graphic representation of my photographs was uniquely different. And it did add something. I still prefer the photographs most of the time. But sometimes I like the graphics. They're just different, right? doing them on steel or on paper and adding different backgrounds or even on t-shirts. He was also really fair in his business. He wasn't just stealing. He affects fucking change too. I mean, he is greatly responsible for Obama becoming president. And not that he was the best president, but he's in hindsight, an incredible president compared to the fucking piece of shit pretending to be one now. He looks better every day. (laughs) Shepard Ferry, by making that hope poster, actually helped elect that guy. I mean, that iconography helped elect a president of the United States, even if it was for someone who we hated, you can't deny the power of the image that Shepard created off that dime a dozen photo. It was a bullshit, nothing image that he saw the lighting and the angle and made it his own. That whole shit that he got dragged through with the AP and all that shit, they should be ashamed of themselves. Fucking for limiting democracy and free speech by not acknowledging that he truly transformed that image into something special. Anyone who doesn't acknowledge that is a fucking asshole. I dig that guy. I think he just gets a lot of flack because he's on top. Well, look, it looks simple to some people, too. Simple doesn't mean bad. You're credited with directing the Black Flag TV party, (laughs) which to me is just a very fun thing. It's just a very wise-ass fun thing. It's the only thing I know that's like you've done a video for. So was that just something you had had fun with? Imagine this. It's 1982 Mm -hmm. and we're driving to San Francisco because these guys want to make a video because MTV has just started about a less than a year earlier. They wanted to do a video for this song that Greg Ginn kind of thought was going to be like a crossover song for them and introduced you to the black flag which everyone thought was like you know i mean i kind of hated this song but i got to sing backup vocals on a black flag record right on that song i actually got to say the name of one of the tv shows like lead vocal for that one word what'd you get well i mean if you watch the video you could see i think i, I mean that's actually my voice oh yeah on the couch in a red hoodie right that's correct And I'm actually wearing an MTV t-shirt, I believe, that I got when MTV filmed a Go-Go's concert live at at Palos Verdes High School. So we went up to Target Video. We slept on the stage, literally slept on the sofas that were on the stage there. I think Chuck 
Dukowski and I came up with the ideas of like it being a party and you know, everyone fighting and on the sofas and all this silly stuff. Black Flag did have a sense of humor. Chuck Dukowski always used to say, if you can't take a joke, fuck them. Mm-hmm. Although I took hardcore punk rock very seriously, being a part of that band at that time, there was a real brainwashing going on. They had a very intense click and I was becoming a part of it. So I was able to be convinced of things that I might not otherwise believe if it was another band. But when you listen to songs like Rise Above and Thirsty and Miserable and Depression and Nervous Breakdown, those songs are Mm. so impactful and so important. To me, Damaged, the greatest album ever made. Abbey Road is an incredible album, but Damaged kept me alive. Except for it's got that fucking blip in it. That fucking TV party (laughs) is a fucking embarrassment. But you're so wrapped up in the moment and in the time you're going along with it, you know, and, and you know that it's sarcastic, but it's like, is everyone else going to get the irony? Being caught up in the black flag thing back then was pretty intense. I'm just happy I didn't get any tattoos, which I came really close to doing too. Oh yeah. And you were going to get a black there, flag Being tattoo. there when Henry Rollins got his, you know, <laughs> drama mask by Rick Spellman. Thanks for answering that. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. Abbey Road. Could you shoot a photo of Paul McCartney now? Because he's such an inspiration and such a great artist, I would have to consider it if I was asked to, but I really wouldn't be like overjoyed to do that. No. I'll give you another example of someone that I think I very rarely admitted publicly that I actually appreciate and really liked his art and that I never made photographs with, but wouldn't want to now was Trent Reznor. Rick Rubin actually took me into Tower Records and bought me that first record. He says, you have to listen to this stuff. And I just heard of them and I just thought they were corny just on sight. But then like when I listened to the record and then when the downward spiral came out, I was like, you know, if I had the opportunity, I would like to shoot this band and this guy. But then I saw that he was doing all his own art and I'm like, oh, they don't need me. And I was only disappointed that I couldn't be a part of it. When I shot Public Enemy's album covers, I was happy to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of it. And the same with Black Flag stuff and a lot of stuff that I made photographs of. I wanted to be a part of it because it was inspiring me so much. I wanted to help push it to the next level. And I felt like I was part of the band. Penelope from the Avengers, too, would have been a great person to make photographs of. And I was at a show. I went to the Pyramid Club to see the Nation Ulysses and Bikini Kill. What a fucking great show. They came out storming, both of them. But I had to see them first before I would photograph them, usually. And I didn't have my camera that night. I was just there to hang out. And so that moment was lost. The landscapes and the still lifes that you did later, like the big tree in The Idealist, it's obviously the process is a little different. You can't set up the background and then wait for someone to do something because there's not a person. Is your awareness of the process different? Are they places that you go on purpose because you want to photograph that place? Or do you just end up there while you're doing other things and then take a photo? I usually just end up there and then take a photo or make a photo. I know it might seem like obnoxious but it's really about making photos not taking photos right but sure <laughs> pronounce it these days yeah. oh, so many people really are just taking photos they don't realize what it's like to make a photo well the earliest photography they would say that you draw an image like when those those big old 1800s photos they would say matthew brady is going out to the battlefield to draw some images uh, and the idea was that you, wow. were, you were extracting the image from real life. People were very aware of the process because it took so long with the light and everything. You were extracting yeah, yeah, yeah. it. It would be traced onto the plate. A lot of portrait photographers say make a photo. Normal times people say take a photo. But the, I think drawing an image 
it's an interesting distinction that, that people used to make. Yeah, I like that. I, I think drawing is a slower process than making. In fact, you're working on different parts and it takes some time. And I say making because it could be relatively quick, right? A 60th of a second, it'd be, it'd be hard pressed to, to draw something in a 60th of a second. I mean, I could do it. I draw fast. It's all semantics. Yeah, it's all semantics. Yeah, you could draw that fast. I got you. You have an interesting relationship to artifice and theater and artificiality. Because on the one hand, when something comes up that's like artificial or it's a joke or, or it has like layers, you're like, uh, I don't want anything to do with it. On the other hand, you definitely create artificiality, you know, like, or at least you, you edit reality down to the inspiring, the heroic moment, especially the hip hop photos. Like you were, if I'm not mistaken, the first person to photograph a rapper with a gun as part of a promo image, right? That was you. Well, I, I hate to say promo image, but there were pictures of artists with guns, you know, and I have a whole spiel about that. The first photograph of any musician with a gun on the cover, I think, or that CBS had ever put out was that public enemy photograph on Rebel Without a Pause. That photo was never meant to be published, by the way. You know, we took a picture of the band in the garage and we had borrowed the 98 Oldsmobile and the Cadillac on a fucking freezing cold night out in Long Island, right? And at the end of the night, the guys who brought us the cars, their friends, we want to take a group picture of the 98 Posse with Public Enemy, just for them to have. And so we made this one portrait at the end of the night. I'm on my tripod, like a, like a fucking 60-second exposure. I'm on Kodachrome 64, and I get everyone to stand as still as possible. Most people don't understand the art of photography to that degree. But again, it was way before digital photography. So they knew something was weird about photography, right? And like standing still wasn't that crazy of an idea, right? <laughs> so it's like, but okay, you guys got to stand really still. We're only using the available light to expose the film. If you could follow me, just stand still as long as you can. I'm going to raise my hand and I'll put it down and then you can move again to get them all in the photograph and to get them all lit well, because my flash wouldn't have been that strong to light everyone and to look as cool as we knew it would look when it was a time exposure, right? So we took this great photo of the 98 Posse. So I made a dozen eight by tens and they gave them out to each of the guys in the Posse. And they all got a signed print from me. One of them, there was a leftover one that was in the studio, you know, where they would record their stuff. And while they were making a Rebel Without a Pause, they're like, oh, we just got to use this picture on the cover. And like, they come back to me and say, if we need the negative we could use on a cover. I'm like, Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, and we had this discussion on the next album too with Public Enemy, you know, where they used the picture that I didn't like on the cover. But this one was like, no, this is the shit. This is the song. It works perfectly. I said, I didn't take this as a cover shot. It wasn't meant to be used. This is a shot just for the posse. Yeah, but this is dope and we got to use it. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, whatever. Go ahead and use it. So in that photograph, when the guys are posing, this wasn't a picture for the public. And that's why three of the guys are holding their little pistols out there. And that was the first time, yeah, I think that a uh, gun was on almost any record that was actually being used as opposed to just being a prop. Later on, I think we used guns on King T's album covers because you know, he was one of the earlier artists involved in that gang activity and talking about it. NWA was coming out around the same time, but he was, I think, before them. He certainly made records before them. And that was just the person I was associated with because of my connection to Ice-T and the Rhyme Syndicate. I guess Ice-T's power we had begun too. The way Ice-T explained it to me, you know, we were just trying to expose their culture to the greater world. We were trying to show people what it was about. And in Ice-T's lyrics, almost all the time, he showed that the gangster lifestyle is a dead end. But in 
every movie you go to that we all love, whether we're gangsters or not, most of us love The Godfather and Goodfellas and uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Everybody likes gangster films. So Ice-T's idea was like, well, if they could do it in films, and he lived the life to some degree, you know, why can't we do it with our records? And I think a lot of people did that. But more importantly, it was also a story about their own lifestyle or what people were living in the neighborhoods and what they had to deal with every day. And so we're showing the guns as a part of telling their story. So I did that for like a year or two, maybe even three years. There came a point where I realized, because I fucking always hated guns. Those were real guns that we photographed with. We never used prop guns. They were always guns that people had in their homes, in the trunks of their cars. And I was still young, you know? I was pretty fucking stupid to put myself in harm's way so much, but I happened to do that a lot in my life. But I really thought it was important to show people that this is people's reality. And we were portraying their reality. I did not think we were glamorizing it. When it got to the point where I realized we were glamorizing it, it was done. Like, I thought it was kind of cool and it was interesting and it was intriguing to me as an outsider. But I loved hip-hop and I loved what people were talking about and I loved how real it was. And I realized that it was that kind of exploitation that I don't like. The truth is, is anytime you put a gun in a photo, it sucks out all the energy from everything else in the picture. The same way it's to kill a person you could just take a picture of a gun on the floor back then, and it was powerful. It's too easy for me. It took me time to notice that. And the last time I did it, and it was a very pivotal moment, I had shot like three, quote, gangster hip-hop type artists in one month. I was burnt out, quite frankly. I'd never shot an album cover more than once every several months. And I had shot three artists that were in the same vein in one month. And then I shot the Ingats We Trust record cover, right? They lived by their guns. That's what kept them alone. I went down to South Central. It was my first time after the riots. It was such a fucked up atmosphere, and I'd been down there many times before. My elementary school days, when I had friends there who'd visit, you know, it's always different going to that neighborhood. But this was a different fucking time. It was really uncomfortable, and it was really sad. It was like we had gone back in time. It was really fucked. Just being a white person in an all-black neighborhood restaurant like people were looking at me like something was wrong. Like, what the fuck are you doing here? That hadn't happened to me down there in the last 20 years. I didn't really know those guys that well. I only knew one guy in the group. It was very tense. We had some problems that day. I had problems with some people in the group, actually. One of the guys in the group threatened me. He's like, this gun's loaded. You might not want to be telling me what to do so much. Was that him joking around and trying to be tough? Or, or had you specifically had like a thing that you wanted him to do and he was resisting? I could be pretty grueling in a photo session to get what I need. And by telling people to lift their chin up, move their head this way, move that way, whatever it is that I was doing, you know, and it's always the least important member of the group that gets insecure. When you start telling them what to do in the situation where people are kind of macho already, it wasn't a good scene. But I'm like, look, we're creating art here. We're creating an image. And just that whole vibe wasn't cool. But that's okay. I've dealt with shit. But now I, in the back of my mind, okay, I got to be more careful, you know, because it was kind of serious. That day, you know, we were in a, traveling in a different car and somebody shot at us. And it was like kind of weird, it's like, you know, not too cool or pointed a gun at us. I don't remember exactly what it was now. But but the real tipping point, I went to the premiere of the Hughes Brothers film, uh, Menace to Society. That was a great movie. And it hadn't been portrayed that realistically yet in major media other than what we've been doing on records. You didn't see what these guys were talking about in movies yet. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah. Menace was an unusually realistic movie at that time. 
very hardcore. And I came out of that theater realizing that I had just shot three album covers, packages for three different artists that are very involved in this culture. And there was that character in the movie that just reminded me of a kid that I had met with Ice-T, who wasn't thinking much and was living that life. He could die at any moment and didn't give a shit. And that was pretty fucking heavy. Did you ever no. talk to the Hughes brothers about that? I did later on. Yeah, and they were very moved by that. And they were fucking stoked. And, and I was at a premiere screening. And when I came out of that, I was like, you know, I'm very sensitive anyways, but I was definitely crying. I mean, I was choked up. And people were all, you know, coming out of the movie theater. And I was like, I could barely breathe. And plus, I could see my hand in propping up this scene in a way and I could see all of a sudden it is being glamorized. And that is not what I ever meant to do. I meant to expose it, not to glamorize it, right? But now there's movies and now it's being exposed to a degree like I couldn't even do in my still images, right? And I let the photographs still come out because I made them and I still put them out there sometimes because I tell the story afterwards and that character, oh dog, just made me realize, yeah, this is over. It's done. I had heard a thing you said about how guns absorb the the attention in a picture and i had thought of something very different as a painter i have a real problem in the background putting words that a person can read oh yeah yeah well because i never like people don't wear t-shirts in my photos with words on them or with pictures on them very very rarely do i allow that but it's also I, like, as a matter of fact, you could look at some black flag photos and you could see black flag Except for, you know, sometimes the band was wearing their own shirt. On occasion, I would let it show through. But usually, I would tell people to turn their shirts inside out if they didn't have another shirt. I yeah, I don't like distractions like that. Well, I was saying it's a little bit easier in a photo because I think when you see something in the background of a photo, like text or a magazine, then people go, oh, well, that's real life. Real life has words in it, and they can screen it out. But in a painting, because it's clearly intentional, like everything in there is something that the person had to put in there with their hands— you can't dismiss things mentally as the background. I think in a photo, every time you do have a t-shirt with words on it in the foreground, it's like you know the photo is about that. Like the one yeah. where Public Enemy is wearing the minor threat t-shirts. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a photo about that. Like guns and words are totally different things. And I was just wondering like, because a lot of times you, you, you're good at controlling the attention of the viewer because like you started with the sort of skateboard mentality of like, oh, this is thing, this is the trick. And then the rest is supporting that. Well, you know, I mean, look at the gunshots, right? Like the first one was QT and it was his idea, that album cover. And he actually wanted it to wrap around because he liked the Beastie Boys, you know, the airplane wrapped around the whole cover. He yep. wanted the Cadillac front half to be on the front and the back half to be on the back. And him looking at someone down an alley that he was about to approach. And he's got the shotgun and have his crew at the back of the car on the back cover. You know, there's a lot going on in that photograph. And at the time, the gun was pretty gnarly, but it, it wasn't the main focus. It was his glance, his glare looking down the alley and the car. That was the main focus. You know, with Ice-T and Power and the front cover, the only one holding the gun is Darlene because her real power in that album cover and that concept was sex. And when you turn the album over, you saw everyone's real power. Ice-T and Evilee, their real power were the guns and her real power was her ass shown, right? One of my least favorite album covers I ever made, but one of the most popular. People remember that album cover. That was Ice-T's idea. He's a good enough friend, and the concept was real, and it worked in that era very well, and it was really strong. And but it's also surprising because it's kind of like that and TV Party, and even the King T cover, which is like so theatrical, are kind of like the least Glenn Friedman pictures. 
when you have to do something theatrical and set up, you bring a sensibility to it that maybe somebody who's that's their native environment wouldn't do. It's interesting. It may not be what you want, oh, but okay. it's it's interesting because they don't see it as an interesting problem to solve. It's like on ice tea power, it's still it's very good, even though it's not at all what you would normally do. Well, you know, I just take the elements of what I would do and try and bring them into it. It's it's not that good. It really isn't a good cover. What's good about that cover is is Ice T's idea and the graphic. That was a really nice art director. He was a really smart young guy. He made that lettering, and that was really good. I mean, that was unique lettering that he made just for that project. And I just did the best I could. I don't particularly like those photographs. I have to say, Darlene looks the best. That's all I could say about that. I don't like the way Ice looks. I don't like the way Evil E looks. But those are my boys. Those are my friends to this day, you know. Ice and Darlene, even like, too, I'm still friendly with her. Ice looks like he's wearing nurse clothes. Well, he's actually wearing a silk suit, which is very him. It's very much him at that moment in time. And his hair is done right. Coming from a punk background, I couldn't stand what he was wearing and how he looked and he presenting himself. But that was a culture that I didn't know anything about. So I had to kind of go along with it. And we had already done my concept. The first record cover was 100% me. I told him exactly what we had to do, everything, and they followed. And he was grateful for that. You know, he saw me, he walked by me, photographed me on DMC one day, and he knew that I was someone he wanted to work with, and he had seen my photos. I used to teach high school in the Bronx. I was an art teacher. And in the beginning of the conversation, I was thinking, it'd be great if Glenn came and talked to those kids. And then when you started talking very passionately, I would think you'd be really mad at my high school kids and their proud slackerisms. But now I'm undecided. How would you feel about if going and talking to high school kids? Would they drive you crazy? Would you want to inspire them? I, I would think that I'm too old to inspire them, but if they were open to it and they wanted to hear me, like... You'd be surprised. I like a conversation with anyone. I would. I love to speak. I love to do public talks. I mean, the last one I did in Pittsburgh was great. Great people came out. People wanted to be there. When I've spoken to students before, it's a little bit nerve-wracking for me because I know most of them don't want to be there. If they don't want to be there, I don't want to talk to them. It seems like you're describing a relationship that's similar to the way you work with subjects. They have to be on board with being photographed by you, and then it works, and vice versa, if you don't have that personal relationship. I'll tell you a little story to that effect. Great parts of my archive dropped off drastically in the early 90s because for a large swath of the population started to become way more enamored with success and fame than ever. Mm. Skateboarding was very visceral. Punk rock was as well, right? I was a part of these things. I was a skater. I went to punk rock shows. Both things, frankly, as a teenager, kept me alive, right? You know what I'm talking Everyone knows how tough it is to be a teenager. Right? Mm -hmm. It was never anything beyond that moment of creation and performing it in front of your friends and maybe a few more people. Mm -hmm. And people were just doing it because they're all expressing themselves. No one was trying to sell records in punk rock. No skateboarders were thinking they were going to make a living off of it. They were just making, if anything, a little bit of money to buy their weed or help pay the rent for their mom or buy a new bicycle or maybe even a car and rent on a one studio apartment as a skateboarder in the 70s. But certainly nothing you were going to do after the age of 21. That was the reality. Hip hop had a little different ethic. A lot of people got into hip-hop for the same reasons as punk rock. People were trying to express themselves, and they were frustrated with what was coming out before them. Disco, you know, R&B, wasn't exciting or as vital as the music that they had grown up on. So they were idealizing the breaks in the records. 
and talking about their own life, their own situations, not some dream world that people were talking about in disco and R&B, right? Now, more so than in the other art forms I just discussed, people were trying to escape. So making money was a goal for some people, but it certainly wasn't the primary goal. People were just expressing themselves and having a good time at a party and then talking about their life circumstance. No one knew they were going to make money off of it when they started. Certainly not become stars. Hip-hop wasn't taken that seriously. Mm -hmm. But by 1991, the time I decided I'm going to have to make Fuck You Heroes, culture started changing dramatically. And all of a sudden, these things that we were doing for fun and to get angst out of our bodies were beginning to be accepted and exploited in popular culture. And people actually began to become famous and make money off of them. It changed the way people moved. It changed the way that people acted. And all of a sudden, artists had managers. Skateboarders had managers. Right. By mm-hmm. 1994, I want to say, there was this group that came out. And it was the last CD I ever bought and the last music I ever paid for in my life. But I'm a little bit privileged. People give me free records. And it's not that I didn't buy new music, but usually stuff gets given to me. But a record I had to buy because I wanted to have it and I couldn't wait any longer to get a free copy of it was the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers. Okay. That was an amazing, yeah. great album in the time for hip-hop. I was making my book, Fuck You Too, and I wanted to make a picture of Method Man. He had the song M-E-T-H-O-D. Man, mm-hmm. incredible. I love that. It just was inspirational to me and so unique and so fucking B-boy and hardcore. It was the hardest shit to come out since Public Enemy in that era. So I didn't know them. So I had to make some calls to find out how to get in touch with them because I wanted to make a picture with this artist who I was really inspired by. He probably didn't know, but I had to go through several people to get to him. And one of his cousins or someone else managed the whole group. I set up a session to meet them at a mutual friend's house. How much easier could you make it than downtown Manhattan? Let's meet at Russell's house and we'll just make a picture on the roof there. He's got so much personality. I will get a photograph of this person anywhere where I could have a half hour of time and I will make a great photograph of this person, hopefully before they're big and famous and too big for their bitches. Unfortunately for me, that time had already come, even though they weren't even famous yet. They had a manager. I wasn't dealing directly with the artist. He never showed up to this session we set up to shoot photos twice. I'm like, okay, it's over for me. I can't do this anymore. It's too professional. It's too organized. It's about capitalism. It's about the money. It's about the scene. It's, a bit, it's no longer about the art. When Chuck D and Hank Shockley wanted me to shoot their photos, I had heard Public Enemy's demos. They saw my rules, my fanzine, and they had, of course, known my other hip-hop photography. They were fans of what I did. We had mutual respect for each other. We were artists all working together. When that time vanished, I I didn't do photographs anymore. That's a label. Can't just fucking call me and hire me to shoot a band. They could try, but unless we have a connection between me and the artist, it's not going to work. As late as 2000, I did a big session for a label because the band came to me and they insisted upon it. They wanted me to do their photographs. They knew my work and I got paid really decently for it because they were a big band and whatever else. I honestly didn't really care for their music. But two of the people in the group, we had mutual friends and we had some similar roots and they really wanted me to do it. Well, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I was able to see and find some political good they had done and some things that they had done. And so I was able to do it. Can you say who that was? Or are you not going to say? 
I'd rather not say, but you that's can look fine. In my book. That's okay. Yeah. All right. And there were some good people in that band that I would still talk to to this day. And there are other people in that band that were fucking dicks. The point is, is that, you know, the whole rock star thing like became really evident in rap and in rock, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not a part of that scene. I'm a fan, but I was a fan of public enemy, black flag, the dead Kennedys, fucking Tony Alva and Jay Adams, but they were also my friends. And that is why I made such good art with them. And they respected me. They could communicate really freely with me. Like, Glenn, try this. Or, Glenn, could you get down in this position? Like, I love this angle. Jay would recommend to me when we were kids. And I would do it because I was a skater and I could move out of the way quickly enough. You know, Public Enemy's second album cover, It Takes a Nation of Millions, the greatest hip-hop album of all time, hands down. 90% of critics would say that. I had a whole concept for that album that, in the end, the band said was too abstract for their audience. What was that idea? Well, you see it on the back of the album cover. It was Chuck uh, all right. knocking out the surveillance camera. They were going to be escaping from a jail. No, that surveillance angle, it's a fisheye, but it kind of politicizes your wide angle. Well, I actually used a fisheye lens on a video camera, and then I shot off of a video monitor to get that look that I wanted for the cover. And I said, this is it. This is the shot. As an artist, I fucking did it. I was fucking stoked. I tried it with a regular camera. Someone brought me a VHS camera. The sequence on the back cover, you see the whole story. You see the two angles of the two surveillance cameras outside the cell and breaking out and getting out of the jail cell. The S1W is coming to rescue Chuck and Flavor. The front cover of the album, the fist just an inch away from the lens about to knock out the camera and make everything go black and they're going to escape from this jail. And Flavor is in the composition as well. So you see him in the background and you see Chuck's fist and you see him. And that photo is in my book, The Idealist. And it's also in the sequence that you see on the back cover if you have the LP version of the album. Yeah. First of all, they said, it's not happening. It's too conceptual for our audience. And you have to imagine that it's on a cassette, Glenn. It's on a fucking cassette and CBS doesn't even let us use the whole cassette. (laughs) You have a two inch square or a three inch square, whatever it was. When we were in the jail cells, we shot other photos. The first day, Flavor didn't even show up because he was actually in a real jail cell. And so you've seen some of the photos. There's pictures of everyone but Flavor's missing. On the jail, you know, to me as an artist, all the lines were beautiful and interesting and the lighting was really cool. And I brought an extra bulb to brighten it up and you had all these shadows and stuff. And so, okay, we can't use the overly conceptual video on the front. You guys are fucking pussies. It's like, this is whack. It's like, okay, but I got you. You have the cassette. I understand. Okay. And you really don't think that much of your audience. That's too bad. But I get it. Hank and Chuck worked in record stores. They know their audience. And that's why they wanted me as their photographer, because they knew I can create images that would speak to people on the record rack. It got down to the pictures of them in the jail cell, which I was already disappointed in. But I said, okay, well, if you have to use it, then you got to use this one. As a painter, you understand. I haven't seen your work, but, you know. The composition, as you understand from this whole conversation, is very, very important to me. So there's one particular photograph. If you're going to use one, and it's not going to be the shot from the video surveillance camera that I wanted, this whole concept that I had, then okay, you could use this one. It's a great, it's a good shot. The flavor is leaning a little to the right. Chuck is leaning a little to the left. The bars are just right. The shadows are right. It's, it's a quite beautiful image with his lips pursed and his eyes just barely showing through the brim of the hat. Everything is good. He's got the hoodie on very emblematic of the period. It's a great shot. We're not using that one, Glenn. <laughs> We're using this one. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't use that one. That's a leftover shot. That's like one I made by accident. I was taking that picture while I was getting this perfect one. You can't use that one. Like, no, we're using this one. Sorry, Glenn. 
It's two by two. You see more of the jail cell bars in this photograph. In your photograph, they might not get it. And going back to what you say, Glenn, you got to hit them with the fist, got to knock them out. We're knocking them out with the jail cell in this photo. And this is the one we're using. I'm like, no, you're not. I'm scratching the negative. You cannot use that photograph. If you scratch the negative, hmm. we're going to have to go with a graphic on the cover. And we had a meeting with Chuck, Bill, Stephanie, Hank. And I made my point as strong as I could. They're like, Hank, I think, was the main one fighting for more bars. And then Chuck was easily swayed. And the dominoes fell. I was like, I lost. <laughs> I had to be a part of that album. I fucking loved that album. They said, look, it, we'll do that stuff on singles. We'll still show the sequence on the back. And I designed that album cover anyways. I picked the fonts and the colors, you know, but then the art director up at CBS at the time changed the colors to the last moment without talking to anybody. So the first printing of the record is with the yellow letters and the gray box around it, which was totally wrong and not the red, black, and green like it was supposed to be. But eventually that got corrected. We did this basically on our own, even the Check Your Head album cover. You know, they already had a cover. It was too late. I went to their fucking studio to hang out. I hadn't seen them in a couple of years, and they played me the music. I hadn't seen them in a while, and we were laughing, playing basketball, showing me their skateboard ramp, and just having a great time. And those guys always make me laugh. Their sequence in the album was so great. I said, we have to go out and shoot pictures. And so we did, you know, like the old days. And Yauk had an idea. He really wanted a photo of his group that had as much essence as my salad day photo of Minor Threat. So we were going to end up at his cabin and shoot a picture of them on the porch. But we met up at Capitol Records on Franklin, where we all parked. And I shot that photo of them sitting on the curb, just three exposures. I knew at that moment, well, there's your salad day shot. That was the one. Even though we shot for the rest of the day and made amazing photographs. Mm. Because I was inspired by hearing that whole fucking Check Your Head album. I wanted to be a part of that. They had already gone through their phase of getting famous, but I knew them before they had anything. I knew them when I thought they sucked, you know, and they knew that, and that was uncomfortable for them at times. But at this moment in time, we were all happy to really work together, and we made some great art that day. And, and as you could see in the My Rules book, a lot more of it got exposed than ever before. Do you know Bruce Davidson, the photographer? He's on the cover of Ill Communication. I think I know other stuff they did, and I was very disappointed in that cover. I thought it sucked. I did another version of it. At the last moment, again, you know, when I got to check your head, there was another cover, and I had to fax them the images. They actually changed the cover at the last moment and put my photo on the cover, and they actually, on the vinyl, used the fax on the cover of the vinyl version. It looks like that. I mean, it was done on purpose. They had time to get the print, but they liked the fax so much. And if you look at my idealist book, in fact, there's a two-page spread titled Ill Communication, yeah. that was what I turned in for their cover. Even though Mike told me, the cover is finalized tomorrow, we really don't have time, and we can't do that. I said, let me have a chance. Please let me try it and do this cover. And I just went out and shot this cover. Until 3 in the morning, I went out with a friend of mine, and we made these photos. And in the end, I think Yao Klar was too violent, and he was just getting into his whole Tibetan phase and stuff like that, as you can see from the center spread of that record. I had a couple of good options that were way better than that fucking whack-ass photo they used on the cover. I met Bruce Davidson. He was a much older photographer, and he had done a bunch of street photography, black and white, Completely different in the 60s. Different, different generation. Totally, different yeah. Generation, no doubt. But I met him, and I said a lot of people my age know this picture because of the Beastie Boys album cover. And he was like, oh, yeah. They, they called me, and they said they want to use that photo on the cover. And I was like, well, send me the music. You know, and then they said the music and, and he just made this face like he had no idea what he had just heard. 
But I yeah. was like, ah, I understand they're trying to do something. And so I, uh, you know, I was like, fine. I mean, he's just describing like not having any connection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually really like Bruce Davidson's stuff in general. And that photo, it's a different kind of thing. It's a presentation. It's a joke. But didn't he do the photograph of the motorcycle riders? Now, that was Danny Lyons, I think you're yeah. thinking of. Danny Lyons has a very similar stories because he's like only maybe Bikers. Yeah, yeah, 10 years older than you, I think. So Danny Lyons, he did a TV show that I was on too that we were both subject to. Yeah. I, I thought that Bruce Davidson had done some stuff like that too. Didn't? Yeah, he had done some kind of bikers, but he, he was just more of a general street photographer. But yeah, I mean, it was just like that personal connection when you were saying the uh, the Public Enemy cover. Yeah, for people that have been growing up with those things, as you were telling the story, I, I had that Public Enemy on cassette. So it meant a lot to me to think about that. I, mean, I had all that stuff on cassette because that's, you know, the time I grew up. I had that Suicidal Tendencies album on cassette. And because it was so small, I had no idea what they were doing for 20 years. Like that one where they're hanging upside down. It's so small on the cassette that I just didn't even really think about the photo. So I could get what yeah. Public Enemy was saying. It's like they had a simple, and Chuck, from what I can gather, thought a lot about not just what he wanted to say, but also what he wanted people to hear, which were sometimes different but what things. what he wanted people to see. See, yeah. Chuck D was a fucking graphic designer. Yeah. Chuck D designed the Public Enemy logo. You know, some toy art director might have gotten credit for that, but Chuck D designed that logo. Yeah. You know, he was studying graphic design in college before he put out a rap record. Yeah, he had a master's degree. Visuals were very important to him, and they still are, and he respects them, you know? A lot of your photos didn't turn into album covers, like, because they're almost, like, too complicated. And the best parts of them, they make good, like, when there's the fold-outs in the center of the Fagazi stuff. There's a lot yeah. of these great details that in the cassette era would not have read. And then in the yeah, CDs, yeah, yeah. it was like, oh, now we got CDs, we can see them again. And we also had the long box for a little while, which was like half an album cover, which is pretty fucked up. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a tough time, man. It was a tough time for artists like me. <laughs> and so that's probably actually a big part of why my stuff, yeah, I also moved away from the music stuff too. And making a living off it, you know, no one really expected to do that when I started. Did you ever expect to make money as a photographer? No, I never even thought I was, was a photographer until I had to pay taxes. I just did it because I was good at it. What was the first year that you realized that you were a photographer? I don't even, I never like calling myself a photographer ever. Yeah, right. but you're stuck there now, so. As, as horrible as it sounds, I'd rather be called an artist. As pretentious as that sounds, I'm sorry to be that guy at this moment. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody on this show is that guy, so we're, we're okay with that. <laughs> but you still, at a certain point, you had to decide that you were full-time. When I was young, being a photographer kind of meant that you were like some fucking weirdo pervert. You know what I mean? Like or, Austin or, or Powers. At the very least, an eccentric, sure. which is not such a bad thing. But but it was very weird to be called a photographer back then. When I went to shows, I brought my camera maybe 20% of the time. First of all, you have to worry about it. Second of all, I was like, just who wants to be that guy? I want to enjoy myself, you know, dance and have a good time. When did you go, oh, I don't have to get another job? Well, I never had another job. Right. But when did you realize that you weren't going to have to? I don't think I ever realized that. I just keep winging it. But I mean, you're not out looking for work right now. I'm not out looking for other work right now, but I am hustling sure. with what I have. Exactly. And, and I don't take it for granted that that is something that I will always do. I believe you. I believe that will be it, but I've always worried about it. You know, I, I'm an artist who doesn't take big commercial jobs or work for corporations that I think suck. So I've been quite lucky that I've had some big lawsuits over the last 10 years that have made me able to live the lifestyle that I live and still keep my integrity. 
I'm going to be 56 years old in March. So I'm like pretty fucking stoked that I made it this far. And I think I'll be able to continue that way the rest of my life. But is it going to be doing photography? Yeah, probably because I work off of my archive now and people buy prints from me and I sell the publications and, and documentaries and stuff. But it's still the same thing. You got to agree with what the people are doing. You're not going to get people photographs to use for bullshit projects, right? Sure. You said you went to college while you were still photographing, but you eventually were like, I can live off my work, at least for now. Do you remember when that was? Like when you realized you could live off your work, at least for that moment? Yeah, I think in the 80s when when uh, when hip hop started becoming really popular, mm. I think that's when it was. Because then the goal was like, if you could pay the rent with what you're doing <laughs> and then have enough money in the bank to pay your rent for like a year, that to me was the success that I wanted to get. And I think I got that like in the 80s. All right. You know, I, I was able to own an apartment and stuff like that. You know, I think hip hop gave me that uh, luxury of saying, and that's also when I had to first pay taxes. What's your occupation? I begrudgingly wrote, you know, artist slash photographer. <laughs> that, that is what I did. And that's how I was making a living and how I was paying the bills. But I just didn't really think that I was that person. I just was just, I just kept doing it. And I was good at it. And I was better than other people that called themselves that. But I still didn't want to be pigeonholed. Right? You've been a, definitely a big inspiration to everybody involved in the podcast. Been a big fan for cool. a long time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guests. Glenn Friedman. Glenn E. Friedman. And their latest work at... Wherever the hell you get books. The best book to start with is called My Rules. It's Glenn's major monograph and it's put out by Rizzoli. You really need to have that one. Glenn also published two books on his own imprint, Burning Flag Press. One of the books is called The Idealist. The other is called Recognize. Available in all the book places. Two of Glenn's books will be reprinted in 2019. They're currently out of print, but still thoroughly awesome. The first is called Dogtown, The Legend of Z-Boys. That'll be reprinted with an extra 16 pages. And another book of photos of the band Fugazi called Keep Your Eyes Open. So keep your eyes open for those. Connect with us on social media or see images from the artists that we are talking about or the ones that they talk about during their interview. You can hit us up on our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, which is... All at We Eat Art. And that's one word, right? W-E-E-A-T-A-R-T. Yeah, baby. You can also rate us on iTunes. Also, Zach has an art show coming up because I'm an artist and you like art and the sound of my voice. So you should come to the opening. It's going to be in New York City at Frederick's and Fryzer Gallery. It's called A Thousand and One Nights. It's opening April 19th. The opening is from six to eight. And like a regular art show, it'll be up for a month. And don't forget, we have a Patreon please consider becoming a patron. Then you will be one of our supporters with your donations. You'll get exclusive episodes, t-shirts, stickers, all sorts of great things. Go to patreon.com backslash weedart. Weedart is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. The engineer, sound producer, and editor is Justin Asher with help from Colin Wamsgams. And today we're talking to... Oh, I have to, I have to say my own name. <laughs> Yep. I don't like saying my own name, man. You guys say it better than me. Glenn. What? <laughs> Glenn Danzig. No, wait. Different guy. Who is it? <laughs> oh, God. Why don't you dare? Kinky Friedman. <laughs> That's what you get.